0: It's the other side of midnight with Frank Marano. Hey
1: baby. I ain't asking much of you. No, 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 baby. I
0: ain't asking much of you. You're bigger, big a big a hunger love. Oh, we will do. Don't be a stingy little mom.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I have complained uh, bitterly and repeatedly, probably much to the uh, boredom of the audience who's heard me rail about this for um, umpteen times, that my, I, I have too many emails. My full day is going through email. And uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, the person that is kind enough to join us right now on the radio is one of the key culprits about that because as the editor-in-chief of Semaphore, he has uh, helped birth yet another terrific news organization – And they do newsletters on all sorts of different subjects. If you're interested in, say, foreign policy or international security, they have a newsletter for that, which does a comprehensive rundown of the 10 or 12 biggest stories in foreign policy with links to other sources, then they do the same thing for finance and the economy. Then they do the same thing for what's happening in national politics. And then they do the same thing depending on just about everything you're interested in. And I think they do a pretty concise job of covering all the news in a relatively objective manner. And it's kind of become my way of reading the paper, but it does fill up my email box. I have been an admirer... And uh, a friend, I would say, of Ben Smith for many years. He is a veteran journalist. He's been with the New York Times. He's been with the New York Daily News. He's been with Politico. He was uh, one of the uh, chief buzzers at BuzzFeed. And these days he's the editor-in-chief of Semaphore and the author of the new book, which everybody in media circles is talking about, Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral. Ben, thanks for staying up late with us.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for the kind words and for having me, Frank. I am, you know, lucky enough to be on the out, uh, on the West Coast today, so I didn't have to stay up that late. Well, that's, that's cheating.
1: That's cheating. That's not really. Uh, <laughs> that's not really fair. Hey, uh, I've talked a little bit w- about Semaphore before, and I've talked with uh, a couple of the great journalists that work with Semaphore. But give us the sort of Reader's Digest version for listeners that are unfamiliar with Semaphore. Why is it called Semaphore, and what is it?
0: Um, Well, you give a pretty great plug. Um, But I would say our, uh, I mean, you know, we're trying to solve the big problems that I think most readers face right now, that you're totally overwhelmed with how much is coming in, and, and sort of unsure of who to trust. And so we're trying to deliver news in a super transparent way, you know, where journalists make clear, you know, what the facts are, what our own opinions are, and then really try hard, as you say, to bring in concise Views from all over, from other countries, from other points of view, people who disagree with us, and to you know sort of deliver the news in a way that, that gives you that insight, not not just not just one newspaper article with somebody's opinion kind of baked
1: in. And how about that name, Semaphore? What does it mean? So it's an old word that means
0: like it basically means signs or si- signals, and um, in English it refers to like railroad signals. And I think if you're if you're a boater. People on boats seem to know what it means. It's a set of flags. But what we liked about it is it means more or less the same thing in, like, 50 different languages.
1: Oh, well, that's pretty neat. Uh, Early on, and then I do want to talk about the book Traffic, which I know you put a lot of work to when it comes across and how it's written – uh, early on, there was a couple of uh, arrows uh, slinged in Semaphore's direction because one of the early people that was backing it financially was Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, so, does that mean that you guys spend most of your time talking about the best PR spin to put on Sam Bankman-Fried's trial? Uh,
0: no, we broke a lot of news about him. Actually, I mean, not not positive news. And we have, I think, we've said that we are are, are you know gonna gonna give his
1: money back. Well, okay. Well, that's uh, that's fair. I gotta ask. You have been um, really, I think, at the vanguard of all this uh, Tucker Carlson news. The coverage that you've been doing, you specifically and your outlet, has been exemplary. A lot of people wondering why Tucker was fired, and a lot more people wondering what he does next. Uh, what's your take on both of those things, Ben?
0: So on the first thing, we have all, you know, every news outlet in America has published what they think is the explanation. The New York Times had a story that said, this is the text message that got Tucker Carlson fired. Um, I think the reality is we do not know. Like, Rupert Murdoch made a decision to fire him. There are a lot of things contributing to that, no doubt, that he sort of seemed too big for the network, that he said disgusting things about women, that he Um, you know, wasn't a loyal Republican, all sorts of different things. But I don't think we really know what triggered the 92-year-old who runs the place to wake up one morning and fire him.
1: One of the areas where – and what about what he does next? Any theories or anything you're hearing? Yeah, I mean, you know, he launched
0: this show on Twitter, but I think – or relaunched his show on Twitter. Um, I don't think he – or anyone thinks that he can really wind up on Twitter. Twitter is a weird place to watch a long form television show. Like I tried to do this once and the problem is people keep scrolling and it's, it's not a place anybody sits and watches for half an hour. Um, and it doesn't have a way for him to make any money, but it is, I think the one place that he can arguably do it without Fox, you know, take, getting mad at him. Um, I think, you know, I think he'll wind up selling his, his services to the highest bidder, basically, and I think the bid will be pretty high because he has such a big following. But I think people it's easy to underestimate the power of just that huge Fox News audience who are mostly older and not going to necessarily download his new app, you know, if he launches or if he launches on some obscure platform, aren't necessarily going to follow him there. And I think, I don't know, I guess my prediction is that he'll wind up making more money but having less influence.
1: Mm. Yeah, we we have certainly seen that before with some other former Fox primetime stars. Hey, you earned his ire a couple of times uh, and his begrudging respect for coming on his show when you were the uh, editor in chief of BuzzFeed and you made the decision to publish the Steele dossier. I'm sure you've been asked about this many times over the last six years, but given what we now know about the Steel dossier through the prism of hindsight. Do you have any regrets about BuzzFeed publishing it?
0: Um, well, I think you know folks should buy my book for the really long version of this <laughs> of my kind of basically ambivalent view about it. I think at the time I thought both it was the right thing to do journalistically and that it would ultimately be good, you know broadly good just to have the thing out. this thing that every all the everyone, all the insiders had already seen it, right? All the politicians and the journalists and the security people. Um, it had been briefed to two presidents. But I think in the end, you know, I, I think I guess I would say two things. One is one is but by, by the time we published it, CNN had reported that this document existed that had compromising material about the president. I think once you go and say that in public, you sort of have to publish it. Like you can't just go waving this document around saying that it's the president's been compromised by the Russians, but we're not going to give you the details. Like, I don't really think that's a tenable position. But when we published it, we said, you know, this is unverified, and in fact, it has some errors in it. And I think I had some kind of fantasy that people would say, okay, like I, I, you know, I can kind of process the fact that these are unverified allegations. And instead, I think, you know, people who didn't like the president just took it as gospel, which we certainly didn't. You know, we sort of had a little caveat that everybody ignored on it. Um, You know, at the time we published it, I think the wide perception was that it was that we had attacked Donald Trump and he called us a failing pile of garbage. I think now a lot of people think publishing it probably helped dispel some of the most lurid allegations about him and Russia.
1: Well, I think you're I think you're right about that. Talking with Ben Smith, his new book is Traffic, Genius, Rivalry and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. Now, I know you focus a great deal on Huffington Post and BuzzFeed in this book. But you also do a great job laying the groundwork for what the early Internet journalism scene was like. And in the mid to late 1990s, there was nobody that did a better job defining that than Matt Drudge. Uh, Before we talk about this Peretti-Denton rivalry that you chronicle in the book here, give us a little background. Remind folks where Drudge fit into this whole Internet media ecosystem. I mean, I think, you know, Drudge
0: was this incredibly important singular figure, still is, who, um, you know, who in some sense was the first one to really come in and attack the establishment media frontally. And, and basically, I mean, you know, for better and for worse, but it was a situation where Newsweek had this story about the president having an affair with an intern, wasn't totally sure what to do with it. Drudge caught wind of it and basically published the story while these editors at Newsweek are debating what to do with the story, which is a pretty crazy thing to have happened to you. Sure, if you're if you're Newsweek. Um, but it just, and, and that just led to this acceleration, I think, of the speed of media. This sense that that you you know that it's harder and harder for gatekeepers to you know to keep the gates to keep secrets from people. Um, you know, and then for a time, Drudge was, I think, you know, the most powerful person in media. Partly because, like, television producers would look at the Drudge Report in the morning, and decide what the news was, and he he could cause you know total panic. I remember covering the McCain campaign in '08, I think it was, and Drudge had decided that there was some kind of weird spot on McCain's head, <laughs> and circled it, put it on the Drudge Report with the word, I think he, it was just cancer question mark. And, you know, that was the whole day of reporters being demanding to know what was up with the spot on McCain's head. The drudge had just kind of woken up in the morning and thought, huh, that's a weird spot. Um, I think Twitter really replaced his role in driving the conversation, although lots of people still go to him. And I think as Twitter – kind of falls apart at the moment it's sort of, he's sort of having a renaissance in a weird way it's interesting it,
1: that is interesting and it's one it's something that i hadn't have thought of talk with ben smith his new book is traffic genius rivalry and delusion in the billion dollar race to go viral
0: ohio ready for some quick mental health facts let's go nearly two million ohioans live with a mental health condition in the u.s more than 50 percent of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at BeatTheStigma.org.
1: In this book, you chronicle the story of Jonah Peretti of the Huffington Post and uh, BuzzFeed and Nick Denton. Um, tell me who these men were and what they were both trying to do at HuffPo and BuzzFeed. Yeah, I mean, at the most, the, for me,
0: the most fun part of writing the book was going back and, you know, sort of tracking down this scene that I was sort of on the outside of looking in. And I mean, Drudge was part of it, too. There's these great, great characters, really. And, and two of them were um, Jonah Peretti, who was this, you know, I, in, the, in, the, in the language of the 90s, he was basically a culture jammer. He was a prankster who... Had got, had gotten curious about how you could do weird, funny stunts and watch them spread on the internet, and and, and eventually we, we helped Huffington Post first build this huge wave of traffic, and then and then went on to found Buzzfeed. And he had this. I mean, I worked with him in, starting in 2012, and the thing that he he really captured was that he was among the first to see that social media was going to be this huge wave that would kind of crash through media and society, and that. News organizations, media companies that could kind of ride that wave could just build enormous scale very, very fast, and that's what BuzzFeed did. Um, I mean, we, he and we had theories about how social media would work. In particular, we <laughs> we believed that people would mostly behave in really positive ways on social media because they'd want their friends to think they weren't jerks, which obviously did not turn out to be true. Yeah,
1: no kidding. Um <laughs>
0: Uh, and the other character, and sort of Jonah's rival, and sometimes opposite, was this guy named Nick Denton, who founded Gawker, and a bunch of other blogs, Jezebel's, another well-known one, Gizmodo. And I think the thing he saw in new media was just that it could kind of strip the hypocrisy off of old media companies. That You, could, you know, you could, t- you could now publish what people really, what journalists were really saying behind the scenes, a little like Drudge. You could also... Um, you know, you could see in the traffic statistics that the audience was more interested in like pornography than in politics, and you could just give them that. Like you could, you know, he, that was his sort of basic point of view that you shouldn't, that you should just, you know, play to people's worst instincts in a certain way. Um, and at times, that was there were elements of that that were really refreshing. Like when he launched this this site, Jezebel, the uh, first thing they did was put in a ten thousand dollar bounty for an unretouched photo. <laughs> and they, you know, somebody delivered a photo of Faith Hill when she still had freckles and uh, smile lines, which had been photoshopped out in Redbook. Book. And I think there was a lot of stuff in media that was in various ways like that, that they kind of chipped away at. The um,
1: the The book is written in a way that is... Chock full of information, very rich with history, but it's also written in a very dramatic way. Uh, There are aspects of it that are almost novelistic. I could tell the amount of work that you put into this. I can only imagine the amount of time. Why did you feel like this was such an important story to tell? Is it because the events that you're covering in this book really sort of laid the groundwork for the media climate that we're living in these days?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, you and I and lots of other people like you know lived through this very chaotic, confusing, interesting moment in media and politics of all this change over the last fifteen and twenty years. And I think, you know, I guess I left BuzzFeed in twenty nineteen, went to the Times to write the media column, and just was thinking, you know, what, what did we, what just happened? Like, what 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 happened there? What did we all just live through, and where did it start? You know, and how did we wind up in this place where? This whole digital generation seems to be losing steam. Um, You know, politics has really been like profoundly reshaped by Twitter and Facebook. Um, And, 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 you know, how are those things connected? So that was I sort of wanted to go back and kind of figure out the origin story. I guess I should say personally, too, I had been, you know, whenever you get to like a scene, everybody tells you that like last year was the last good year and you just missed it and i of course have had that feeling about about internet media that i've gotten there early but not quite early enough and wanted to go back and kind of you know report out the stuff i'd
1: missed i hear about that in the world of talk radio literally every day <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yeah, I've been hearing it for uh, 15 years. Hey, um, w- BuzzFeed obviously just made a lot of news recently for essentially folding up shop. W- what happened? How did BuzzFeed go from being so influential, whether it was influential when it came to listicles or quizzes or in the kind of journalism that that you were doing, which dominated the whole news cycle and had everybody uh, citing BuzzFeed as its as its source? How did BuzzFeed go from being the top, Online dog, culturally and journalistically, to not being able to stay in business?
0: I mean, there, there's a lot of very specific answers to that that have to do with bad management choices, bad revenue choices that I, among others, made. But the biggest picture is just that we, you know, we placed this kind of all our chips in bad on social media. The idea of BuzzFeed was. We're going to build a new media company that's going to be, you know, rooted in and tangled around and right about Facebook, Twitter, and these other social platforms. You know, we're going to grow as they grow, and we'll kind of figure out the business on the backs of social platforms. Just sort of the way that, like, you know, ESPN and CNN and Fox build businesses on the back of Comcast and the other cable companies. Like, we would be the content for these new digital pipes. And that that just turned out totally wrong. Like there never was, you know, there just weren't, the, the the people running those platforms weren't interested in having professional journalism, professional entertainment that they would have to pay for or that their users would have to pay for. And um, yeah, and so that that just was a disaster. And and I think that was, that's the core. And and you can sort of argue about whether that was delusional and we never had a shot, or whether these were decisions. People like Mark Zuckerberg made you know, mm. that could have gone in other ways, but, um, but that's really the
1: story. Talk with Ben Smith. His new book is Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. Talk to me about Andrew Breitbart. Uh, obviously we lost him uh, a few years ago, but he's somebody that you, uh, that you cite as one of the primary architects in the battle for clicks which seems to define almost every media outlet these days how influential was he in the current media environment that we have today
0: yeah i mean i think he's a really interesting figure cuz he was he was there early he was kind of matt drudge's uncredited assistant for years and and then of all things left drudge to start huffington post the kind of left-wing drudge report came back to drudge Started this website Breitbart, which then which became very big. But really, like, was the I don't know, sort of in some ways invented, you know, online media on the right. Um, people like Ben Shapiro worked for him, got their start with him. Um, I guess. I mean, I think he, he you know he died, gosh, more than I think more than ten years ago now, if that's possible. Um, and and he died sort of on the cusp of the Trump era, and I mm. think what you know, Steve Bannon, who would later run Trump's campaign, took over his sites. And I don't, I'm not sure if Andrew would have gone exactly this way, but the thing Bannon did was really like follow the traffic in particular, to its logical conclusion, and that kind of populist right wing politics that Trump and people like that around the world are into, uh, you know, are very well suited to Facebook, and particularly the way Facebook worked in the middle of the 2010s. Where, in, where they were f- obsessed with engagement. Where if you would, if you picked a fight and people started yelling at you at the comments, that was like the best way to get your thing to sh- to share, and you know, and, and, and the traffic, and yeah, and I think in the kind of and Breitbart really just like followed that energy straight to
1: Donald Trump. Uh, last question for today Ben and I'll, I hope you'll come back whenever uh, whenever you're on the west coast and our hours are are conducive you have to doing Kauai. so. Yeah exactly. But um, Japan. every media outlet that I know seems to be dominated by this quest for clicks uh radio stations tv stations newspapers they're all about posting content that's going to generate um the largest number of clicks and impressions possible what do you think that's done to journalism and do you see any reason to be optimistic for journalism's future in the internet age
0: well i mean i think you know i think it- I don't. I'm not a lot of it, and I think it can be. It's very useful to understand who's reading you and why. But you can also, yeah. I mean I think people. Often, you know, often really what what you learn from it is what people want to hear. And you can. And, and it can. The temptation, which exists across media, is to tell people what they want to hear, even when it's not true. And I think the the, the sort of clarity of traffic can really intensify that temptation. I guess, but I think it's always there in in news media. Um, Gosh, what was the second half of that question? Well, it's basically any reason to be optimistic. uh, Yeah, I just just think the the world, the media world is changing so much right now. And so much of the action is in podcasts and radio shows like this, in newsletters like ours, and kind of essentially like smaller, quieter forms of Mm. media, not giant social platforms where everybody's screaming at each other, but, you know, places where you're hearing from a person you basically trust to be on the level who is, being transparent with you and, and and yeah and who's trying to help you navigate the total chaos of like late social media.
1: Yeah, hey, Ben, it's always a treat to talk with you. I'm uh, glad that you're doing well. Congratulations on the book. Congratulations on what you're doing with Semaphore. Uh, let's do this again soon.
0: Yeah, thank you for all the kind of words, Frank. Thanks for having me
1: on. Thank you. Uh, anytime. Uh, the book is Traffic. Its author is Ben Smith, available on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, do so at 800-848-9222, 800-848-92-22. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. midnight.